Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnow. Against all odds, the United States has successfully sworn in a new president. On today's episode, Sean, Chris, and I discuss the spectacle of the modern presidential inauguration and explore what the performances chosen for them say about the commanders-in-chief they represent. Hello, Sean and Chris. Hello, hello. Hey, y'all. So we've had quite a month to kick this year off with. Oh, just peachy. Yeah, just when we thought 2020 was as bad as it was going to get. Here comes January 2021 to kind of put us in our place. It's almost like the uh, new year is completely a human construct that demarcates a fictional line and this thing that we call time. But here we are. Yep. So with the events of this past month, with the insurrection, the armed insurrection at the Capitol, with the impending second impeachment of President Trump, and with the equally impending inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, we thought that we would take this opportunity to talk about the inauguration as a performative event of its own. Take a look back at inaugurations from recent history and talk about the performances that took place there and kind of reflect on what they say about those particular elected officials and then look forward to what, frankly, little we know about Joe Biden's inauguration and what maybe that tells us about our current state uh, of partisan politics and what that might tell us uh, about the future moving forward. So I guess I would like to start, Sean, since you have the most background here with sort of musical performance, this was actually, at least this approach to it was, was kind of your idea. So right. you want to talk a little bit about why you chose this topic and kind of your, your thoughts as a musical performer. Like you mentioned, the concept of inauguration is just a big old ceremony. Feels so incredibly performative and it's often somehow, no matter what's happened, a big every four years kumbaya, let's reset, like, quote-unquote, unity moment. So what I thought was interesting to take a look at an event that is inherently so political, choosing to do things that are trying to carefully not be political, but inherently it all just circles back to being very political in choice, especially with performing standards and, and pieces of music that are just trying to appeal as broadly but also stoke patriotism. So like with all of these checklists and confines that we kind of put these performances under, what do we get? <laughs> the inauguration is this sort of moment where after what is usually and what is increasingly a, a very strained time for American partisan politics, right? And, and even within parties, right? You spend two years fighting over who's going to be the candidate, especially if you're not the incumbent or or if the incumbent is not running for one reason or another. So the parties kind of end up deeply divided themselves and then the country is divided along um, these conceptual lines more so than they already are. And then we have this big event, which is meant to sort of, I, I've always felt like it, it's meant to put all that in the past a little bit, right? Like this thing is over. We put a period on uh, the campaign and we start anew. And, you know, as, as maybe the ultimate example of this, Biden's theme of America United, which feels particularly optimistic <laughs> given the current circumstances, but I think it really underlines the, the sort of idea of what an inauguration is supposed to be, right? Like, it, it's this moment to reset and... We have a, a new administration coming in and like him or not, like this is our country and this is our process. But with that in mind, like, I don't know, have you ever felt like that's really what it was? Like, because following it, we're often, at least in all of our lifetimes, we're immediately back sort of in the shit of it. I have always felt as though the kind of hullabaloo around inaugurations is more about ceremony than about anything else. Uh, it's just kind of more of like a performative thing that is 
kind of in essence a little bit hollow on the inside kind of lacks the meat of like doing anything meaningful um it's you know seems very celebratory and at least the ones that i have been able to experience as, as an adult they seem very just bombastic and going all out and there's many reasons for that but ultimately the demarcations of a successful administration as they come into office are usually marked by the first 100 days and with it beginning with this big bit of showmanship it's kind of overpromising in a lot of ways and something that i mentioned as we we're bringing this up is i don't know what it'll look like with uh, biden's theme of america united but in years past i've seen this very eclectic collection of performers and artists at these inaugural parades that seem to have been specifically chosen to appeal to certain demographics that in my perspective helps to accentuate this idea of it being a very hollow performative element that doesn't necessarily reflect on the ideals or the direction that the new administration or the continuing administration anticipates. Yeah, it's sort of this, the idea, it, all of that stuff that is a problem isn't there if we don't look at it. And and here is here is my ideal represented by these names and images that will appeal to a broader audience. And look at who comes out and supports me. And based on that, you know that I have... Uh, this image that that I that I want you to see, yeah. and I, I guess that is sort of why I feel like there's there's this weird optimism in it, but it it's really kind of a continuation of the optimism that plagues American politics, at, at least on the left of this idea that that we can work together, right, or that there is a common meeting ground, right, or or a space sort of in between where where we can come together. For me, I feel like the inauguration is supposed to be the embodiment of that, right? Like yeah. we all descend on Capitol Mall together and celebrate this person that enters office. And it's sort of like going to family dinner on Thanksgiving, right? And everybody gets <laughs> together and you all say nice things to each other and, and pretend, you know, like the last 30 years didn't happen. And then... <laughs> And and then when the the night is over, you you go back out and you you're back to saying shit to each other about each other. Yeah, you know it, it's sort of our our version of that. It also kind of reminds me of a wedding in a lot of ways as well. It's <laughs> just something that's happened in certain ways, shapes, and forms for so long that it's kind of expected to have this kind of grandiose quality to it, and there are certain elements of it that are anticipated and expected and it lasts way too long and you know it's a very <laughs> celebratory thing but at the end of it it's something that ultimately is there for messaging purposes in a way mm -hmm. you know like it's there like you know i'm having a wedding to please my family to throw a party for my family kind of deal we're having an inauguration to let everybody know that this process is what makes america great and everything's going to be okay after this right look at how peacefully we're transferring power oh boy Faye. shall we try to get into this <laughs> you already sound exhausted sean <laughs> <laughs> Mm. So yeah, well, it was interesting for me when I was doing like light, non-super journalistic research about it. It was hard to find that much about George W. Bush's two inaugurations, but it was significantly important to note, especially for the first, his first inauguration, there's seemingly beyond the classic military salutes and everything, there's no extra performers or anything, but... I guess there's like also another pre-inauguration like dance party ball thing. And that list of artists reads very 2001, Ricky Martin, Destiny's Child, and the list goes on, which was weird, but apparently we were really optimistic. I guess the only really significant thing to me in both of his inaugurations was that the national anthem was sung by a military member that was a white dude. And like, I think if anything, the messaging of the, National Anthem, right, is a specific messaging of this is the voice of America in many ways, I would say. Right. 
And I, I would think that in the context of 2001, that's not particularly shocking. You know, in no. the context of 2021, that's really shocking. But right. this was also before we were having large-scale, useful conversations about those sorts of subjects. Like, the general population didn't look at a white guy singing the national anthem for a white guy becoming president and see it as inherently problematic because we weren't having those conversations yet mm -hmm. on the same scale that we're having them right now. Right. And the only other two performances of note from his second inauguration were both by um, operatic mezzo-sopranos singing vaguely patriotic songs of things about America. And my first impression is like, it's an attempt to be classy, in air quotes, that opera inherently has that kind of association, which, and when I think about Bush and many, from what I can remember of his criticisms of just being stupid, um, <laughs> like that is some somehow some sort of like, look, I can be educated too, and classy too. That's kind of funny. It's It's like the the easy way to seem worldly maybe yeah is is to pull from the fine art world or the classical music world as a quick shorthand for classiness which therefore equals old european values is george w bush a secret opera fan though i don't i mean we didn't know until recently that he enjoyed painting that's right. true um his choices of american mezzos was interesting and i'm trying to desperately remember what i remember the opera scene in 2005 when i was you know a wee thing but i guess there's also um a thing in the opera world where it's always the whoever is the big american soprano at the time is the last great american soprano <laughs> in many ways it's like somehow we um like don't produce enough big superstars in the opera world compared to europe and there's there's always this implication that it's a dying breed, no matter what. <laughs> now, what I find to be really interesting about that is for one of my journalism classes this past semester, we covered a little bit of Bill Clinton's inaugurations mm -hmm. and Bill Clinton's inauguration in uh, 93 and uh, 97 were kind of a, a little bit in contrast. I know that uh, Maya Angelou recited a, a poem that she wrote specifically for the event in uh, 93, which is absolutely fantastic. It's on the pulse of morning. Highly recommend that anybody who listens to this checks it out on YouTube just because it is such a fantastic poem. But also on that day, I know that LL Cool J performed... <laughs> Diana Ross, Michael Bolton, Michael Jackson, Aretha Franklin. Mm. So it kind of stands in stark contrast to the first inauguration of the president that followed, or at least it appears that way. And I think especially so in this, in his second one, because everyone was like, Ooh, girl, you messed that up real bad. <laughs> so apparently his shockingly, his, his celebrity pool was even worse the second time around. Oh yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if, uh, Two wars will do that. <laughs> you know? Maybe. Just a, just a little bit. But Bill Clinton had larger, at least when he was elected, he had pretty broad support right. across ethnic groups too, right? Um, right. Something about white guy plus Southern plus charming all worked out. Well, and he was relatively young and he was pretty cool and he played saxophone, you know, and so like... Right. He didn't inhale. He didn't inhale. <laughs> right. And on that sense it almost tracks that like the creme de la creme of american performers would be interested in performing for him more so than george w bush who's perhaps reaching out or, or trying to appear sophisticated through his own choices because he was already fighting that image of being uncultured and and unintelligent mm -hmm. but it is it's it is really striking especially sean you mentioned that um, for Bush, there was a wider range of performers at the inaugural ball. Was that what you were saying? The first, yeah, the first time around, it was like basically everyone a teenager wanted to perform. And then he, you know, got like country people in 2005. Well, also, if you think about it, a second term for a president 
is kind of not quite as much cause for celebration than the first. It's right. just a kind of a continuation. Right. And so in looking at Clinton's, granted, these are all kind of before the internet in its current day and age when we were not quite so connected. And so people were still t- tuning into these things via like C-SPAN, NBC and things like that. The kind of draw for a second inaugural from just a kind of like a managerial perspective or a uh, messaging perspective may not be quite as important as like the first day of the first term in office. Yes, and actually good good transition because the, my counterpoint is Obama's choices from first to second mm-hmm. inauguration. So if you just take a brief look at his first one, the, the biggest story there was Aretha Franklin singing My Country to Sevilla. And in an infamous, very memeable hat, where it's a giant fucking bow with Savorsky crystals on it. It was a meme. It was a moment. And the other big performance, I would say, was, uh, like, I guess an arrangement of sorts of simple gifts um, with Yo-Yo Ma, Itza Perlman, Gabriel Montero, Anthony McGill, who is the first black principal clarinetist for the New York Phil ever. So there's, right, there's like a concerted choice in representing Black America, but also here's our choice in Classy that just hits all the biggest biggest hits of music. But also, which I found interesting and like just kind of adds to our like exploration of how hollow it is, even for the performance of Yo-Yo Ma, Itzhak Perlman, Gabriel Montero, and Anthony McGill, they were lip-syncing or playing to a recording. Wow. <laughs> and like they literally, like, like the piano, like they like pulled off so they were just all miming to it. And I understand their reasoning. It's outdoors. It's fucking freezing. Yo-Yo Ma's cello probably costs more than our life. So to like actually engage it in that cold of a weather might actually damage the instrument. So then why the fuck do we have to do this outside? Why are we like making this whole big charade, pretending they're playing, and then just like admit on NPR two days later that we were lip syncing? This is fairly long after... Ashley Simpson was on SNL lip syncing. <laughs> yes. This is like yes. maybe almost a decade at that point. And yeah. it's just like, what does that say about the inaugural? You know, if it's this something that is supposed to relay this certain kind of messaging, when you take out the soul of it in a way, like what does that mean for, like what does that say for the remainder of the term? Right. Right. It's trying so hard to be perfect that you just remove everything out of it. So, like, and that actually ties. So, in the second inauguration, it was Kelly Clarkson singing My Country to the Beyonce lip syncing the national anthem. And there was that whole, oh my God, why would you do that? Yada, 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 yada. And it's the same reason. It's a fucking freezing morning. I want it to be perfect. But again, it just, it just rings hollow. Yeah, and Sean, um, as a performer, how would you feel if, you know, you got on many scales an important gig and they said, you can do this, but under one condition, you're going to be singing to a backing track or you're going to be lip syncing to a backing track. It's because I, I don't have the, you know, performative history to like really kind of even hypothesize about how I would feel in that kind of situation. But I can imagine that somebody who dedicates a lot of their life and a lot of, you know, their history and their values toward performing, it would kind of be a blow. Yeah. Um, no. I'd be like, <laughs> I mean, it's also as a singer, it's a little like, like you have all these resources in the world to like make measures and stop gaps to prevent it from ever like, from like you're worried about not feeling warmed up enough, yada, 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 yada. Like, you're Beyonce. You're Yo-Yo Ma. You have the resources and money to, like, make accommodations to make it work. Like, there are plenty of times, like, anyone who's ever, like, been in band or sung before that you're doing it in less ideal conditions. But it's like this, I guess, everyone's fear is this bizarre amount of pressure of, like, all of America is literally watching me and like there's an inherent pressure of it being perfect for some reason. So we missed the point. 
by worrying so hard about being perfect. Yeah. Well, what does that say behind the scenes of like what was being communicated to these performers of their expectations? And to me, I would think it would communicate that like for a performer at that level, right, where music is a business, right? Like mm-hmm. for Beyonce, for example, or Yo-Yo Ma and and as his own way, like music, you know, is an art and it is it is all of that and they're they're performing is is its art, but it is also inseparable from the very business like, very corporate thing where like if you blow it at inauguration or if you blow it at an award show or whatever, that can seriously damage your career and your income and and sort of the the future of it. But it also it's this interesting parallel to the fact that we do all of this in January to begin with. You know, all of the dates set out in the Constitution for certifying an election and inauguration and everything made time to physically move results from one place to another and and move all that sort of communication in a time when we were doing it by horseback, right? Right. And it's been adjusted a little bit since, but, you know, now obviously that's not a issue, right? We, We are watching election results come in the night of. And it certainly wasn't an issue even in 1992 or 93, but like we still do it because, you know, we have inauguration in January in the cold in a drained swamp because that's where it happens and how we've always done it. So, you know, it's this big fake thing, but it's also just sort of another aspect of of the whole package of this process, which is steeped in tradition like like you said earlier, Chris, and that it we do it just we do it this way just because that's how we do it. And all that's to say that if you are a performer who somebody comes to you and says, Do you want to perform an inauguration? It would be really easy to just go, Well, yeah, definitely. And then you find out that you have to limp sake it or or pretend to play and you kind of go along with it and go along with it and suddenly you're not actually performing at the inauguration, but your name's there. Man, so much great exposure, though. <laughs> You're just being paid in so much exposure. The best kind of exposure yet. Also, just a small, like, side about just, like, our, our actual national anthem. Right, anytime a singer has to perform it, it's kind of a lose-lose situation. Yes, you get to sing the national anthem, what an honor, but it it's an old military march, but you're supposed to make it somewhat sort of modern. But if you try too hard, we'll make fun of you for it. But if you, like, don't do anything to it, we're also going to not like it. Yeah. And it's a hard song to sing. And you have that big, big note you have to make a big deal about. But, but like, you shouldn't make it indulgent because it, it should be about America first. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about, you know, that song from a performance perspective kind of being very much a death sentence in a lot of ways for the performers like yeah rock in a hard place for sure and it doesn't matter how well you do there's bound to, of course everybody's a critic but in this day and age especially <laughs> it's awful like fergie's version of it do you remember that yep. um, <laughs> i do that burning train wreck of trying things and like maybe the most famous or most successful we could argue popular version of it the the Jimi hendrix cover happened at woodstock where the the risk there was zero you know if you messed up the national anthem at woodstock nobody was gonna care you know most people there could not hear it so (laughs) you know like like literally hear it or like perceive it either probably both i meant literally but okay um (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like, so we celebrate that version of it, but it happened under these circumstances that, especially now, like, would not be replicated, right? Mm -hmm. He performed it in a vacuum, and that's why it was great. That's not going to happen at inauguration. The more we talk about it, I mean, like, not surprising, the more it just feels like all these inaugurations are, like, one aggressive marketing campaign, and it just feels ever more algorithmized, Instagramized, hollow, empty, meaningless thing. Yay. It's like a continuation of the uh, political campaign, even though it's over. Yeah, like, girl, you already won. Calm down. Yeah. What is kind of built into its form, right? Like, 
It is a coronation, practically speaking. There's no reason to have it happen. We don't need to celebrate it. And it feeds on that American legend-making, right, that that we are so great because we have this peaceful transfer of power. and uh, But it, it builds into all of the problems with that, too, of like all of the symbology of it is deeply nationalist by design. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there's no way to have a celebration like this without that, right? Like if you're going to celebrate your new leader, you celebrate your new leader of your great country and it, it just sort of snowballs, right? And so you have this thing that cannot be anything but a large nationalistic celebration, this sort of propaganda machine. And we don't think about it that way any more than we think about the fact that we sing the national anthem at sporting events. Why do we need to start a NASCAR race with that? So I think part of the problem we run into is that it is the celebration of success by an individual, their ideals or their party's ideals conquering another party's ideals, right? So you already have that level of it. That on top of the celebration of the American ideal and the American nation and that heavy nationalism, and you fill it full of nationalistic symbology, right? And pretty soon you have this this very heavy, very um, loaded sort of bomb that there's there's no easy way to navigate any of that in a way yeah. that is um, helpful, I guess. Right. What do you think about how both of Obama's inaugurations and the hullabaloo around it were very celebrity-filled with, like, especially black celebrities, but just filled with a lot of celebrities, you know what I mean? And, like, how those associations kind of tie together. I don't know. I was pretty young when Obama first came around, but, like, he felt pretty close to a celebrity. Like, in a way that, I guess, I hadn't experienced Bush before. He seemed, I guess, I wasn't old enough to experience um, Clinton, but just, like, he's hip and cool and he gets it. Yeah, I think that Obama had celebrity that no other president in the United States ever really had. Um, even Reagan, who literally was a celebrity, he was a movie star. Right. His rise was so, so fast. And it was because he, I feel like it was in part because he was a great orator, a really charming guy. And he commanded attention and respect in ways that a lot of politicians at the time didn't. There's also, you know, first black president. You know, that is a you know, a historic thing that can't be overlooked. And so his choice in the kinds of performers that he included in his inauguration definitely reflected that in celebration of black America and his heritage and, you know, the struggles that had to be overcome in order for that to be possible. And by not only doing that, but also focusing on his celebrity during a time when the internet was kind of just really starting to become as connected as we know it today, served as a catalyst for it to really be a spectacle, I believe, in ways that we had never really experienced before. Right. It was like the walls of celebrity were starting to crumble. And then Mm -hmm. we were expecting these public figures to give us insight into their personal life or some facsimile of it. So we inherently feel more connected to whatever version they want us to feel connected to. And I really do think that with Obama, much more so than any of his predecessors, we really had that glimpse into him as a person. Because it's really easy to forget at the end of the day that these political figures are people before they're politicians. And I still remember, even though I don't, I'm not familiar with basketball, I remember him taking time out of his very busy schedule to put together his picks for the, what is it, the the brackets for the Sweet 16 or the March Madness, whatever it is. I don't know. I don't know basketball. Um, College stuff. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, The the hoop ball with the thing in the net. (laughs) Yeah. This is this is an art podcast. We don't talk sports. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the most powerful man in the world is enamored enough with college sports to put together a bracket and share with the rest of 
those people who also enjoy this thing, which is a level of connectivity that I certainly never experienced having been old enough to really know and witness and understand George W. Bush's election in 2000 and his inauguration in 2001. You know, Obama was on a whole different level and also definitely more within the public eye at the level of of a celebrity as, you know, we've come to know and expect of celebrities being in the public eye today. Right. And I think it also can't be minimized, sort of jumping off of that, how different the world was between 2004 and 2008 mm-hmm. and and how rapidly the voting culture changed, right? So I turned 18 in 2008, a month before the election, and all of us being in this sort of general generation, right? Like our generation came of age right as Obama entered politics, quite literally, mm-hmm. right? Like he he became a senator in 2005, I believe, and he is an incredible orator and he is an incredible writer and he is, you know, inspiring in this sort of idealized way that that we think politicians should be, right? Like he is the great speech-giving, humanized politician, right? So between 2004 and, and 2008, you have the first wave of millennials, if we want to sort of continue with generation theory, coming of age and, and being able to affect that electorate and bringing with them all of their expectations of what a candidate should be. And I think that that really shifted things, you know, and, and it was riding this wave of, of everything that had happened since Bush was elected the first time. And that in that decade, like contemporary internet culture became a thing. Mm-hmm. And as a result, completely changed how we came to view our political figures. It was a similar situation to the much talked about television debates between Kennedy and Nixon, right? Mm-hmm. Like TV's new, the idea that you can have candidates on prime time as a spectacle for people to watch in their homes is new, you know, and everybody who, not everybody, the majority of people who listened to the debate on the radio thought that Nixon won, but my God, he did not look good on camera, right? And was not a performer. And here you have Kennedy, who in a similar way to Obama is very charming. He's very handsome. He's a very good orator. He he speaks with conviction. And even though his performance, his sort of speech performance that night was not great, he had the presence. A similar thing happens. Obama was plugged into the internet immediately, and he knew how to sort of ride that wave in a way that John McCain had no hope of ever doing. <laughs> yeah. And his VP, who became a sort of proto-internet meme in, in and of herself. And it's like interesting to see like Obama like carefully manicure and maintain this kind of image. You know, he's kind of popular for his annual like summer playlists that he always releases of like, this is what I've been listening to. And if you've ever looked at them, they're like so carefully manicured to be like covering the hits of the summer, but just indie enough to include the next big thing. I think like his most recent one had Phoebe Bridgers on it. You know, it's like, and like, just one song of Afrobeat by the one Afrobeat guy that everyone knows. So it's like he like just manages to listen to the pitchfork enough to like <laughs> carefully curate everything. It's that's what it feels like. And it's like, I don't know. I don't want to be cynical and say like, this is a carefully perfectly curated list that someone did for you. But also, yeah, <laughs> a little, little too perfect here. Wouldn't that be such a great job to have to be Barack Obama's personal playlist creator? Oh, I would, I would love yeah. that. That would be so much fun. Yeah, make sure he's hip and, and cool with the things. How much are you paying me? Done. There. It's all experience, but want. imagine this internship on your resume. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in charge of uh, Barack Obama's social media. Right. <laughs> I, really, right. I create experiences for America. It's one of those that 
you know, you get an internship and you always have to sort of sort of like spin it just a little bit just to make it sound like what you did was more important. And and there's that sort of fiction that comes with it of like everybody knows that you were just a measly intern and didn't really matter. But you have to like pick out the little things that you can convince people that that was the experience you got at that job, whether or not you did or, or not, you know. But if you intern for Obama and make his you know, help build his playlist. Is the name Obama on your resume enough to to carry it? I don't feel like that is an internship that you'd really have to spin. <laughs> Just the word Obama. Yeah. yeah. Just the idea, I, this has no point. Just the idea of that excites me, that there's, you know, uh, there are internships out there that you wouldn't have to lie about <laughs> so much. <laughs> what does that feel like? There, you know, this idea of like, you know, is there, and there probably is a position that helps to curate this thing, there's also probably this person or organization that is there specifically to curate the inaugural performances as well, um, which is something that we talked about a little bit. Um, I would love to know, I would love to be a fly on the wall to kind of, you know, see what goes on in the room when they're, you know, trying to discuss, okay, who do we have at this inauguration? What kind of demographics are we trying to reach? Who's hot right now? Who is not going to make a scene? You know, all these like little things that kind of have to be considered at the end of the day, whenever this, you know, incoming president or president coming in for a second term is trying to create this kind of messaging platform with a very, very specific and intended purpose. You know, there has to be somebody there who specifically is doing the PR and kind of running that algorithm to determine like what is kind of like the best person, group, speaker, poet to put into the situation that will garner this elected official the most benefit. Right. Right. That job has always existed, right? Like you always had your PR team in, in whatever form. But just thinking about the way that we talk about presidential campaigns has changed in the last decade where we talk about their social media team, right? Like it's it's not just communications. You don't just have a communications team. You have an entirely separate wing for that. Similarly, the people who do these jobs of building your inaugural performance, right? They have all that data in a way that previous candidates would not have. Mm-hmm. Whereas before you would have to do like the madman sort of thing of this is what we know based on interest groups and, and, and control groups and, and right. that still happens, right? You still have those conversations and you, you pay people to sit in a room and tell you if the slogan works or not. But you can also run an ad online. And get live interaction. Yeah. Right. Or talk to one of the the one of the infinite number of companies that runs this stuff anyway or hire a firm that does it and they have all of their data and pretty soon like pretty soon you have a, a machine to tell you what sort of inaugural performance you should have mm-hmm. which has some heavy implications as we move into the 2021 inaugural celebration which is it's looking going to be entirely you know remote and online and in that way is sort of freed of the confines of space and time where you can you can have any performance from any time anywhere sort of happening on it and that is i think the one detail that we know about biden's inaugural thing is that it's going to be a lot like the dnc was last year where it's a bunch of remote people doing their own thing and sort of spliced together for a media event like every awards show has attempted to sadly be <laughs> in the last six months. Oh, did we just skip Trump's inauguration? Or do we do we need to talk about it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, is there anything of note? Right. Like if you look <laughs> at the inauguration itself, it's conspicuously lacking any celebrities. But you know, from what we can piecemeal and remember from the internet, it's more like everyone just said no, right? I remember a couple of articles saying like, oh, he's having trouble. No one's saying yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all just like the, the tabernacle choir, yada, yada, just choirs, religion, all these like things to cobble together whatever image you wanted to portray. Like one person that I remember being asked to perform at the like inaugural ball, yada, yada, whatever, is Jennifer Holiday, which I don't think either of you 
would know necessarily off the top of your head, a Broadway performer, best known for Dreamgirls and and I Am Telling You. And she's kind of, I guess, kind of a gay icon in the way that almost any Broadway singer is sort of a gay icon. But she, like, said yes. And then everyone's like, are you fucking kidding me, bitch? <laughs> and yelled at her. And then she said... Uh, and then her excuse was someone wrote an article saying, this is why you shouldn't do it. This is why the gay community cares about you enough. That she's like, okay, cool, bye. But it's also like, hmm. She was going to take that paycheck. Yeah, she was going to take that paycheck. I mean, like, when was the last time you heard about Jennifer Holiday doing anything? And the only other, like, performer of vague note or interest is Jackie Ivanko, who is, like, a winner of America's Got Talent. You know, just, again... Like what I'm, I love reality competition shows, and that is just the worst in the same way the inauguration. It's trying to be so broad and like broadly appealing that it just dilutes any, that's a bit harsh, but any artistic integrity. She's a child opera singer, which there, A, that's not a thing. You can't do it. Please stop. But so she, she won as a small child pretending to sing opera, and everyone is so amazed with her. And then she performed at this because i guess you know you'll take a gig and exposure but i think the weird thing was she has a trans brother and everyone was kind of like what does this mean like what are you doing here and saw and then her like brother came out with some the statement basically saying like representation in this corner like hopefully we can make change (sighs) yeah that speaks to the optimism that we all know i did not I don't know about all of you, but that a lot of people had in 2016, that maybe this would be okay. Right. It's also kind of funny that the person that did perform is a reality TV star, right? Like Winner. Winner. (laughs) No matter how many people said no, like this is still a deeply symbolic thing for the man that was inaugurated, right? You have Mm -hmm. religious choirs. He can point to and say, I have the support of of religion and then a reality TV star, right? (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's kind of perfect in a lot of ways. It is so perfect and sad. I I would, you know, the big question is, what did he ask? Who, because, you know, like part of the thing that we all stare at him and go, what the fuck is like his deluded sense of, self-importance and everything i i would just you know fly on the wall to know like how ambitious this list was i'm gonna get beyonce too again and rihanna and, and coldplay well, i mean he didn't ask kanye kanye would have done it oh yeah what a missed opportunity for mr trump <laughs> would kanye rap the national anthem i'm fascinated i wonder if he even was part of those conversations right that's the other side of this. Like, did Trump have a list? Right. Or did he just forward it on to his PR guy and was like, I don't know, you figure it out. I'm going to have another bucket of KFC. Like, yeah. is he even a person that would have been involved in it? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. And don't know and either. if not, then know. who was trying to answer those questions? Like, was Steve Miller, Stephen Miller out there, you know, like <laughs> calling record labels? Like, somebody, please, please come on. But, please send Beyonce. Right. Well... <laughs> I don't think he'd ask for Beyonce, given his track record. (laughs) You never know. (sighs) Well, it was also something similar that we saw during the Republican National Convention Mm -hmm. in 2016 as well, where, you know, you saw the, you know, in stark contrast to the Democratic National Convention that was just star-studded and had all these big names. And you saw the Republican National Convention where all the guest speakers were like, B-less actors from the 80s. You know, it was a very kind of similar situation where... Talking to a chair. Yeah. (laughs) If Scott Baio could sing, he probably would have performed at at the inauguration. You know, I mean, whether or not he can sing, I don't know. But there was such a thin list of people willing to support him there. And something that we mentioned earlier is that by signing on to perform at the inauguration, you're also implying that you then also support the intended policies of the person coming into office. And with all the backlash that we saw in early 2017, of course, that a huge portion of the entertainment industry, which typically leans, I say typically, but there's this huge swath of the entertainment industry that 
doesn't lean toward whatever it is we're going to call right. the Republican Party was in 2016. Yeah, they are batting at a disadvantage. Does that sports metaphor work? I don't know. That's a. It's kind of a weird D and D reference. Yeah. That's what I <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just take your lowest roll. Yeah. yeah. Now now we're comfortably in our element. So yeah. they were rolling with advantage for that performance check. <laughs> they You're totally right. How how difficult is it to staff a conservative inaugural performance, you know, especially it it's only going to get harder, right? Because performers tend to be progressive because artists tend to be progressive and you want to align yourself in that direction. Mm-hmm. How that's going to change now, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say because, you know, from what I can gather, there hasn't really been much news about the inauguration since January 5th because on January 6th, everything changed. Right. Yeah. And this will be releasing the day of or the day after inauguration and so you know Mm -hmm. all these questions all these blank spaces that we have for what's going to happen on that day will have been answered by the time everybody listens to this but you know it's suddenly becoming clear that this kind of performative aspect of the transition of power that has historically had this hollow element to it suddenly isn't very important finally right for better or for worse we just need to put the hand on the book and say yes and move along I mean, you throw it on the pile of things that the last three or four weeks have brought into light, right? That not only does the inauguration maybe not matter, but how much does the electoral college matter? Are we ready to have that conversation? Mm-hmm. How much does voter suppression and gerrymandering matter? And how much does this idea that we need to amplify every voice in every room equally, no matter how willfully untruthful they are, for the sake of appearing fair and balanced, right? Is that a viable option moving forward? And once we start sort of grappling with that question, like, can the ideal that every voice matter, you know, is that ideal actually sustainable? Is it, is it, a, is it a thing that we should be striving for? Or do we need to start thinking about, about the effect that not only the things we say, but the people that we allow to say them and where they are allowed to be said, the effect that that has on individuals and on our national conversation. It, when, once we start thinking about those questions, then suddenly events like this, I think, have to come into question as well. You can't wonder if you know Fox News is a viable media conglomerate and not question whether or not a giant nationalist party every four years is a viable thing too. That's been one thing that, you know, the pandemic has been awful for so many people in so many different ways. You know, there's so much loss of life and there's been so much economic uncertainty. But one thing I've found very positive that's come out of this is that there's a lot of people have been forced to reevaluate what they feel is important in their lives, myself included. And through this process of evaluation, some people are really deciding that they don't need this superfluous stuff in order to find happiness or meaning in their lives. And that's kind of bleeding into some things you know that aren't quite so personal. And I'm hoping that this also bleeds into some of our institutions. If the inauguration in 2021 is drastically different enough from what it's been in the past to the point where we realize that we don't need it, maybe that will show other people that some other aspects of our lives that have always been a part of it just because that's the way we've done it, also aren't necessary. And these things that we've held on to just for the sake of holding on to them can finally get the close look that they need. I think that is an excellent note to end on. Well, since this is coming out around inauguration, we don't know what's going to happen, but hopefully things have gone smoothly. And either way, hopefully... 
we are looking forward to something like stability moving forward, something like a positive change. I don't know about you all, but I am beginning to feel like we might start seeing something okay come out of this at the end of the line. But there's a lot of dark stuff that we got to get through first. I'll take okay. I'm just... <laughs> We interrupt this outro to bring you breaking news about the inauguration. Um, As we mentioned before, we recorded this episode a few weeks before anything had been announced for the inauguration. So we wanted to step back in. And um, now that Biden camp has released some details about what their plans are and give a bit of reaction. So Sean, you've managed to dig up a bunch of info on it. You want to give us just a quick rundown of, of what we're looking at for the 20th? Sure. So the big headliners, hypothetically, as in the during inauguration ceremony things, is we get Lady Gaga doing the Star Spangled Banner, Jennifer Lopez doing a quote-unquote musical performance, and then Amanda Gorman is doing the poetry reading, who I know is a young, black, up-and-coming poet. Um, and then the list for the the pseudo-ball, which has been being advertised as TV special, understandably, we have Bruce Springsteen, John Legend, Foo Fighters, um, Ava Longoria, Kerry Washington, hosted by Tom Hanks, Justin Timberlake, John Bon Jovi, Demi Lovato, and that's what we got. Thoughts? We always knew this year was going to be weird, right? Um, right. Burgeoning fascism aside, like, <laughs> mid-pandemic, you can't have... Uh, traditional inauguration and so it's going to end up being sort of like a weird amalgamation of the grammys and a zoom call i guess <laughs> um i just like my initial reaction to this and by the time this comes out it will have already happened and so we are talking about this sort of moving target and maybe it'll be wonderful and but i i feel like Really, the point of this is the most inoffensive, most middle-of-the-road, broadly appealing lineup. Um, Just, on the one hand, like, that is Biden's whole uh, platform here, right? Like, I am the guy in the middle, Um, you know, I am chosen just to bring the car back into its lane. And, And so I wonder, too, if, like, this is just a kind of an olive branch, right? Of of just like, hey, um the, those last four years were crazy, right? Here's Bruce Springsteen. Maybe maybe we will be okay after all. Give us the boss. Well I do know that um well I don't know this, but there's talk that there's a lot of I mentioned this to you guys previously, a lot of mm. those artists and performers that were chosen to perform during this are kind of directly involved in a lot of the conspiracies that have led to a lot of the unrest that we've seen this month. And, you know, I like to think that the politicos in Washington are petty and catty and are doing this intentionally and trying to, you know, like fly in the face of, you know, some of these. All that. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, why, why pass up this opportunity? So that's just going to be my truth as I see it for right now. You know, it's just like they chose Tom Hanks specifically because he is, you know, subjected to all this criticism and these, uh, you know, forums and right. parlor and 4chan and wherever else. Tom Hanks is baffling to me because it feels like just the most like apolitical, just floating along actor that plays the old white dude in the biopic. And it's just like, OK, he's America's dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is this? He's going to introduce us to America's grandpa, who's going to lead the country for the next four years. And uh-huh. then he's going to say, there's a bunch of people who are going to play you some music. Have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> this is like being begrudgingly drug to the nursing home where your grandfather lives. And like, oh, they're they're doing an open mic night. We're going to go see grandpa. And, and it's his birthday. And we're going to have fun. Um, you're going to enjoy it. Here you go. I for, I forget about that too, that also Lady Gaga is somehow wrapped up in the QAnon 
uh, satanic nonsense uh, or or somehow supposedly implicated. Um, so I, I like that. I like that idea that um, this is somehow just a deeply, deeply petty act on 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 behalf of of the Biden team. Um, they got all these people that they knew that Biden would say yes to, and they're just like, you know, the deep state takes <laughs> over again. Because <laughs> the other option is they somehow don't know that, and that's very depressing that they just like didn't notice that. It's probably a bit of both for being oh, honest. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, don't remind me. It's But it's the young media team putting this together that, you know. Right, right. I don't know if you have any strong opinions, but I like the choice of Lady Gaga for the national anthem because I think in another universe, in another timeline, she was would just be a standard singer. So I think musically, artistically, I think she'll do a good job. I think the same can be said for most of the lineup, you know? Yes. Like... Definitely a very safe bet for all of these, you know, generally across the board, all if not most of these artists are well regarded by the general public uh, across many different boundaries and, you know, socioeconomic boundaries and geographic boundaries. Um, and there's enough of them that they cover a kind of a wide swath of uh, the, you know, performative arts and with just enough uh, kind of veering away from that center, you know, like with the Lady Gaga and with the Foo Fighters to kind of satisfy the outliers that I, you know, it, I'm not really surprised, Uh but at the same time, I feel as though the Biden camp didn't really want to make any rash decisions and do something completely out of left field because you know, that's not the theme. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not Biden's whole brand either. Yeah, you know, it's very much the. I don't. I don't want to say that this feels safe, but it's in a way it is, and that's not a knock against him um, or any of it. It it just that is in so many ways it is on brand for everything that that he represents. I feel like you know I like the Foo Fighters well enough. I liked them a lot more when I was like sixteen, but. <laughs> I feel I I definitely feel like they are the choice that it's like um hello fellow teenagers look at how cool the <laughs> bands are that like us you know like like it's that sort of uh reach out um which is important and I, and I don't know maybe you can say that for for each one of these sort of folks but kind of yeah I do think it's a bit more caucasian than I would have imagined it like carefully fulfilling demographics. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the thing that surprised me the most, honestly, especially, you know, if you are trying to play it safe, why make it so homogeneously white? You know, there are, there are the outliers there. There is some number of non-white performers, but it's starkly and amazingly white, blindingly white. One would even say so. (laughs) You know, as a thought experiment, I like to consider, like, uh, how different would it be if, like, Andrew Yang won, won the presidency, you know? <laughs> right. Just right. like, hmm. It'd be more TikTok-y. <laughs> yeah. Right. And Childish Gambino would be headlining yes. the event. Yeah. Please. Speaking of alternate universes, that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> I was not a member of the Yang gang by any stretch, but... A childish Gambino inaugural party, like I'd be down for that. Sure. Yeah. Does it finish with "This Is America"? I think it does. <laughs> it's ju- it is just two and a half hours of "This Is America." <laughs> um, that's a fun thought experiment because, in so many ways, Biden was just the safest candidate. And I think that that is how he got the nomination in so many ways. And so he has announced a very safe inauguration. And maybe that is good, you know, like maybe there is, maybe there's just a little too much unrest right now. And, and part of that approach is um, 
is is playing it safe. It's just a shame that that means a blindingly white lineup, right? That that the safe choices also happen to be a bunch of white guys in their forties, fifties, and sixties, you know, and yeah, and Lady Gaga, um, <laughs> <laughs> and J Lo, <laughs> and J Lo. That's true, um, and Kerry Washington. I don't know. Of course, this is a kind of a fool's errand because by the time this comes out, anything could have happened. Um, so with that in mind, hopefully if there were any surprises, they were pleasant. If not, I will probably have cut this, uh, coda out. Um, and (laughs) we'll go from there. (laughs) This is kind of like the, uh, Stephen Hawking inviting time travelers to a party that he's holding in in the future. You know, it's just like, if if they show up, then yeah, time travel is invented. So if this shows up on the pod, everything was okay. Right. Yep. And if not, you don't need me to tell you that it's not okay. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?